Hello and welcome into the KE Report. I'm your host, Shad Markwitz, and I'm speaking today with Eric Wetterling, also known as the Hedgeless Horseman. Runs the hedgelesshorseman.com, and we will put a link to that down below, and is also active on Twitter and CEO.ca. And Eric, you're just one of our favorite guests on the show because you always have interesting insights on how you're looking at trading the junior resource stocks. We were having a big discussion before we started this call today just about what has your attention, and we bounced around to a number of different topics but we kept coming back to nickel. So we thought, what the heck, let's just go ahead and do a quick episode on nickel. You had brought up to me just a number of different macro factors for the nickel sector. And when you look at it, you know, if you think back a couple of years ago in 2022, there was that epic move higher in nickel. And that was really when the Ukraine war started because of the concerns that Russia is such a huge supplier of nickel and palladium. So that came into front and focus. And then the futures markets got really wild and then eventually they halted trading on nickel. And ever since then, the price has collapsed. It's down about half of what it was in 2022, but so has the interest in the junior mining sector. But when you look at the nickel space and when you're looking at some of the different fundamental drivers for it as a critical mineral, you got a number of different things that you think could animate the nickel price in the years to come. So let's start there, Eric. What are you seeing in the overall nickel space? Yeah. So, Typically, I, I'm not really a macro guy. I look at companies and I'm a stock picker. Like, do I think this is cheap relative to the you know product they have? But like, I couldn't help it. I delved into the nickel space because I immediately get interested if something is kind of, I mean, nobody cares about it, let's say. And especially since, like most people probably have seen, there's a lot of initiatives by governments around the world and OEMs, etc., to get into nickel deposits and, and to ensure the domestic supply of critical minerals. I mean, nickel is very critical. I think in 1956, the Defense Department of the U.S. labeled nickel the premier war metal, that it's the closest thing to a war metal out of any metals, basically. So obviously, it's highly strategic. And then I found a bunch of recent interviews with Rick Rule, where he laid out his thesis. He was asked about what does he think the next uranium is, because he was bullish on uranium for the last two, three years. And now he's been obviously getting paid handsomely because uranium is doing well. So his thesis is playing out and he bought it when it was dead cold, basically. And he said that nickel, platinum and palladium are things he's really looking at now because it's, they are so hated, they are so cheap. And he has a few bullet points, let's say, what his thesis is for partly why the metal prices are down right now and why he thinks they can recover. One thing he believes is happening is that the Russians are disordering their stockpiles because they need to raise money for the war effort. And I looked into the Russian uh, PGM nickel deposits and typically their ore bodies have a three to one palladium to platinum ratio. And if you look at the palladium and platinum price, Palladium has crashed a lot more than platinum. Platinum is basically, even for the last several years, palladium is down a lot. So that kind of, you know, jives, basically. And that, of course, as he described it, is artificial supply, meaning that, of course, if you're disordering stockpiles, you're going to run out one day. So it's a one-off kind of thing that might be depressing the market in all those three metals right now. And then he goes on to say that, Western mines are being shut down. And and we're seeing news releases almost every day. Yesterday, I think, or maybe it was today, IGO announced that they're putting their Cosmos mine 
going to be putting that on care and maintenance in Australia. And I read a recent article where it's like Caledonia, which has, I think, three nickel mines or something. I think it officially belongs to France. And the French government is looking to basically give them $200 million or something to cover rising energy costs. So you see governments getting involved as well, because obviously if it's a strategic thing, you don't want to be too dependent on your, quote, enemies, which would be like Russia and then Indonesia, Philippines, which is in the Chinese sphere. And this Chinese money that's basically been funding the Indonesian supply. Norilsk, which is the major Russian supplier, has not been doing sustaining capital investments. And I think two days ago, we got a news release from Norilsk or Normetal or whatever they're called. They're expecting further production drop this year, and they're going to shut down the, one of their furnaces mid-year, or planning to do, because they need uh, to do capital repairs. So that also <laughs> appears to be in line what his thesis is. Basically, in, in that case, I mean, that's less supply when they're shutting that down. And then he believes that Indonesian production is unsustainable, that he flew over the areas in Indonesia where they are mining this, these laterites, which has been the main reasons why I think the nickel sector right now, for example, is in a surplus, because they basically swamp world markets. And they're the reason kind of why, I mean, the Western mines are being shut down. And you know how the Chinese are. I mean, they like to corner markets. They did that with rare earth and all that that they sometimes don't have a problem operating at very or no margins because they gain such a big market supply. And, and that's like a loaded gun, like, you know, natural gas has been between Russia and Europe that you're dependent on them. And then Robert Friedland has done a lot of presentations recently where he's talking about that the, uh, basically the militaries of the world are rearming and that the U.S. is short of... 155 millimeter howitzer shells and stuff like that. And there's a lot of metals that go into the the military industrial complex. And I found old articles from you know previous wars in the U.S., for example, where I mean they, they got short supply on everything basically: tin, nickel, copper, because everything, all of those metals goes into you know the war machine in some way, shape, or form. And that I also read a very interesting article about Sudbury, which I, I don't remember if it was during the Cold War or I think it was during the Cold War. Some guy who worked there, he believed that they would be the first target to be nuked by Russia if the Cold War became a hot war because Sudbury was providing basically 95% of the nickel for the allied nations. I mean, you have to, I was going to say, Google that and look it up for yourself. I have links to it though if anybody wants so that's just a very strategic thing at the same time you need it for the militaries and obviously you don't really want to have your supply be dependent on your potential enemy in that case like i mean if one believes that one person's idea that hey russia would nuke sudbury as their first target just to shut down nickel supplies. So, I mean, basically the US and NATO had uh, would have very hard time to arm themselves. I mean, it makes total sense. So, uh, and when you see the French government, for example, come in there, potentially helping out in Caledonia, I mean, basically government subsidies by the looks of it. I mean, I think it kind of hints that, yes, the West is seeing this as a 
strategic problem that we have to have Western supply, domestic Western supply. And, and recently in Australia, you see also there, there were crisis talks, high-level crisis talks with government officials about the nickel and lithium industry. And it's like, is that only just to keep jobs or are they like, they're thinking a bit longer term like the Pentagon, for example? Yeah, Eric, it's definitely a story very similar to copper where there is all this demand that you could see building there was ample supply in the past, and a lot of the politicians and policymakers are looking at those pastimes and missing the point that right now there's not a lot of new mines coming online, and most of the supply could be coming from problematic areas or countries that are not trading partners with you right now. So it could be a situation where we need to see more domestic supply, and that is evidenced by the U.S. and Canada in North America making big grants available to nickel companies, and they've even started taking action on that to boost the domestic supply. And we're also seeing manufacturers, OEMs, as you mentioned, coming down and making partnerships with the nickel companies. So let's take this over to the world of the nickel stocks, because that's what investors here are looking at. There's no shortage of people waving their arms in the gold and silver space saying that these things are undervalued. We're seeing that in copper as well. But People forget there's a lot of nickel companies that are very undervalued and they have strategic investments. And then sometimes all it takes is a little spark just to get things going. We saw that recently with a small junior company making a big move yesterday. I guess give us your quick snapshot takeaway of the nickel stocks. Yeah, first I'm just going to say that, like you mentioned, there's a lot of OEMs, even Agnico Eagle, which is one of the premier gold companies, recently took a stake in, I think it was Canada Nickel. So it's like, you have all these OEMs, Samsung, you have a Finnish stainless steel producer, you have Samsung SDI getting into, you know, FBX and uh, Canada Nickel. So it's like there appears to be a frenzy from multinationals and mining companies and even gold miners to get, a, you know, some ownership in Western nickel deposits. But if you look at the retail driven market, it's some of the, I mean, nobody's interested at all. So there's obviously a huge disconnect there. And I think, like always, retail sector is very good at pricing in the exact sentiment right now. But why are these big companies who are planning, you know, 10 years ahead, 20 years ahead, why are they buying? Obviously, they're not buying the current price of nickel or the mood of the retail investor. I mean, I think they're seeing like this might be going on, that it's artificially depressed. They see shortage in the future, especially from Western supply because they're shutting down. And then what happens if Indonesia not only stops growing, but actually reduces production? Because you can't really, it's not sustainable in the sense, I mean, they're, they're plowing through rainforest like it's nothing. It's not like you have one big fat deposit that can last 30 years. No, they're just plowing down land and obviously the bigger you are to have that growth pace the more land you actually need to mow down and you can't do that forever so i think they're looking let's say beyond potential russians disordering beyond indonesia's current production capacity and accounting for the fact that nickel and a bunch of other metals is going to be more important to the west because imagine let's say you cut off supply from the east all of a sudden the western mines the demand to supply ratio might go up 10 times or something like that. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's like 
the risk of it, I mean, that's obviously why Pentagon and people are involved. They're looking at those kinds of risk, which is like you cannot afford not to have critical supplies if things turn really sideways. Anyway, so yeah, companies. One recent interesting case is Nikan Limited. They recently put out, I think it was yesterday, yes, 2.32% nickel equivalent over 31.5 meters in Manitoba, Canada. And that stock opened up around 60%. I had a tiny, tiny position already. I actually bought some when it was up 100%, I think. And then I thought, hey, okay, you know, I'm getting uncomfortable here because I I talk about it a lot, the psychological thing, where it's like we don't want to chase typically, especially if we're contrarian, let's say. We always want to feel like we're the first ones in. And then I looked like 40 minutes later, it was up 300%. And the funny thing is, like, some of these juniors, in this case as well, they're so cheap to begin with. I mean, I think the market cap was like $4 million two days ago. So if that goes up 100%, that's just $8 million Canadian. That's not something you would look at and say, whoa, that is way ahead of itself or something like that. That's what makes this market, this sector, such a big opportunity, in my opinion, because, like, you see, you can... You can have some stocks up 100% and you would still not be even close to say they're anywhere overvalued. Try to do that in 2016 at the peaks there or even 2020. If some of these juniors went up 100% from those valuations, they would look absurdly overvalued. And yeah, I mean, that's one interesting case. I don't have a huge position in it. I don't know if, you know, this is telling that. I mean, this look, this result looks like, you know, a typical discovery assay of some famous nickel deposits. But is it going to turn into, a, you know, Julie Moore or Noah Bollinger? It's like, there, you know, small odds of that happening, of course. But it's like, is there a chance? Yeah, I think one has to say there is a chance. So, my current view on that one is like, you know, I have a relatively small position, nothing I get too emotional about. And if it works, it works. If not, you know, you're going to lose. You only know what you're starting off at. And that's like 8 million market cap. Well, Eric, just as a final thought, you know, if you see a move like that in Nikan Unlimited, which the ticker is NICN, just for people in- interested in following along. What does that mean for the other nickel companies that have strategics that have come in? As you mentioned, FPX and Canada Nickel have had strategics come in. Stillwater has had Glencore come in. We've talked about Magna Mining before, where they're very advanced on permitting. And actually, in Sudbury, in the main nickel camp, they're the ones that can actually move into production probably sooner than anybody. What does that mean for more established companies? Right. I mean, that's the interesting thing here. There's like, in my opinion, there's a lot of buys out there. It's just, you know, relative to each other and uh, what kind of risk reward typically, what kind of margin of safety downside there is. I mean, in Nikan Limited, for example, you don't have a deposit, you don't have permits or anything like that. So that's strictly, you know, an if story still. Because if, if nickel shoots to the sky, you, you don't have a deposit from, you know, a few good holes of nickel and copper. So if you look at what they have, their market cap, and you think they're cheap, and then you look at like still water, critical minerals and magna mining, how much money, how many years would it take to get to their stage for a company like Nikan? I'm thinking tens of millions of dollars and years of work. And especially in case of magna mining, for example, they have a bunch of permits on two projects. Uh, They basically almost have 
two produce ready to go. Uh, not only does that take a long time from a permitting perspective, uh, there's not even a guarantee, far from a guarantee, that you'll even get permits. So in some sense, they are kind of, you know, priceless and have been coming even more priceless given that I mean, ESG has been ramping. So make no mistake, I think Nikan looks cheap, but how cheap does that make like magna mining and still water critical minerals, which are far more advanced and Nikan, if they even had similar success, they would probably have to raise, let's say, 10, 20 million or in Magna's case, maybe 70 million to redo that. So I just think it's an interesting thought concept when you evaluate inter sector risk reward. Well, Eric, we'll wrap it up there for today, but just kind of an interesting informal chat on nickel here and some of the drivers for the nickel markets, some of the partnerships we're seeing from the big boys with the companies looking for domestic supply in North America, and then also how that translates down into some of the very depressed valuations we're seeing in the nickel stock. So we'll keep following along with this sector. It's definitely one that's an unloved ugly duckling right now, but it may become a swan and it may become, as Rick Rule has pointed out, something that's the next hot space in the critical minerals sector. Until next time, Eric, always enjoy our conversations. And if people like Eric's thoughts, definitely click on the link below. Takes you over to the Hedgeless Horseman. And we'll wrap it up there for today, Eric. But thanks for coming on the KE Report. Thank you, Shad. And consider me biased. I own shares of most of the companies I mentioned and Magna Mining and Stillwater are sponsors. Twice biased.